0: Welcome to One Market, keeping the Laurier Brantford community connected. I'm Bruce Gillespie. This week, we learn about some of the efforts underway to make our campus a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive place. Then, we hear from a student athlete about what it feels like not to be competing this year with so many varsity sports being cancelled. Plus, we get a behind-the-scenes look at how the ICT team has worked to ensure that students, staff, and faculty have all the technology and support we need to work and study from home. All that and more, coming up on this episode of One Market. Our first guest is Lamine Diallo, who is an associate professor in the leadership program, as well as the faculty colleague for EDI. He's been busy this past year working on a variety of projects to make our campus a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive place. I started off by asking him what attracted him to this sort of work.
1: It's difficult to answer the question. For me, I will say that I have been as a visible minority. uh, I left uh, Africa 35 years ago. Uh, and I always been in a situation of minority and my job, I felt my job was to make sure that wherever I go, if there's anything I can do to, pour, uh, to give a voice to those uh, minority groups. Uh, and I was involved on things like that, even uh, uh, just having a family, having your son growing up in a system where the school uh, is not inclusive. All of those concerns had driven me. Uh, to be interested in, uh, diversity and inclusion. Uh, and I started some groups uh, in Waterloo when I joined, uh, uh, Laurier. I moved to Waterloo. Uh, and at Laurier, I have been also uh, trying to work uh, informally, I would say, uh, to always attract a uh, diverse faculty m- uh, m- member, uh, support students. When I started at Loyer, I was one of the first uh, visible minority on campus, I would say, uh, black anyway. Uh, and uh, students were happy to see me around, and I coached some of them and supported them. Uh, and how that's how it started, in fact, and uh, it's personal interest. Uh, and last September, I was officially appointed to uh, be the faculty colleague uh, on equity, diversity and inclusion.
0: I think for those of us who know you, it's no surprise to know you've been doing all this work in the background for all these years You know, without this official title, but now you've got the official title, which is great. Yeah. And certainly the, the the position comes at a, a really important time, right? We've just spent five or six months with a really heightened level of discussion around the world about Racism and violence against Black and Indigenous and folks of color. Um, so, so what are you doing in your role these days? Like, what does the, wh- what's your what's the work involved?
1: Uh, yes, you, you're absolutely right. I think that when I started, it was last September. It was a quite. Uh, time. Uh, my uh, objective was to work so slowly through the process here at Laurier to help the uh, university think about how do we uh, create a space that is more inclusive, welcoming uh, and uh, inclusive and also pay attention to attract more diverse uh, faculty, uh, community. Uh, and uh, six months later, uh, you know, uh, with the killing of George Floyd and some of the tension, the uh, pandemic, all of that also, uh, you know, heightened the whole idea of uh, paying attention to diversity and inclusion with the protests around the world. Uh, and I believe that the timing also uh, was positive in a way that it did call uh, institutions, not only universities, but uh, the states, uh, the social services, the police, all those institutions to start paying more attention to uh, diversity and inclusion. Uh, my work is mostly to support uh, initiatives at the the Laurier-Branford campus that promote or push for a more diverse and inclusive uh, institution. And a lot of things happening, and now my job is mostly to facilitate the processes. Uh, What I have noticed recently also is that there are a lot of initiatives, but there is a lack of coordination. Mm. Uh, A lot of groups doing their little things, and in fact, uh, one of the things that I would like to continue doing is to try to coordinate a little bit some of those activi- activities, uh, just uh, at least recording uh, so that people know that exactly these are things that are happening uh, in our campus and also uh, identifying some initiatives that I can also provide support to. In fact, the job is mostly uh, as a uh, promoter, someone who supports, who pushes, who coordinate, who uh, listen. Uh, to and um, mostly focus on faculties. Sure,
0: I think that's a really important r- role to have here. Though I mean, at, at a time when you know a lot of uh, a lot of us are probably thinking, I mean, certainly a lot of white faculty are probably thinking about these issues in a more concrete way than we have in the past. I think it's useful to know that there's someone like you out there doing this work and sort of, like you said, trying to coordinate all these little efforts and activities to so the, so that they actually come to fruition. Because it seems to me that one of the one of the frustrating things about this kind of work must be the, the length of time it actually takes to see progress often, right? It's not that you can sort of have a meeting today, solve it, and then, you know, announce 10 new initiatives tomorrow that are, are coming to being. It seems like it's a much more involved process by the time you sort of look at what's happening, listen to people, facilitate discussions, and then sort of come to, to an understanding of what you want to do.
1: That's right. I completely agree. I think that I see it for myself as a journey. I think that it's uh, we're just at the early stage of the process. Uh, the good thing we have at Laurier is that at least we have an administration that is also uh, willing uh, to pay attention to the uh, change that are needed. Uh, and uh, just by reinforcing the, the staffing, hiring recently uh, uh, associate uh, VP on diversity and inclusion, Uh, creating positions such as mine, for example, uh, faculty colleagues, having two women faculty colleagues also that uh, have been uh, hired uh, uh, a couple of years ago, not hired, but at least appointed, uh, and also uh, giving uh, our AVP uh, more resources so that uh, this work can uh, happen. Uh, But uh, as you said, I think that this is going to be taking years, uh, but it has to start somewhere. And uh, my belief is that, uh, just listening to what is happening at Laurier here, I see that, that uh, uh, the faculty members themselves are starting to think about, okay, maybe I should review my course content to pay attention to adding more uh, uh, different literature from uh, uh, groups such as the black community, the indigenous community, so that students can see the diversity of uh, uh content. Uh, we have people that are meeting uh, to discuss uh, reviewing the content of the uh the uh, Brentford Foundation courses. Uh, we have uh, recently, in fact, I had a first meeting with a group of faculty, black faculty members that are starting to get organized as a, as a caucus uh, so that also they can have a greater voice. Uh, I have another colleague that is thinking about setting a center for pluralism uh, here at Laurier, uh, who also I'm um, working with slowly, slowly. It's a lot of demand on time, but I think that uh, these are things that need to happen, Uh, and uh, I do it in a way that is uh, genuine. Uh, My personal agenda is to just create a space where people are welcomed, uh, a stronger university, and also the way we provide education to our students so that we give them a greater worldview so that they can be citizens that are uh, looking at the world as uh, a unit where people are involved, listened to, and paying attention. And I think we have a a young generation of students who are capable of that. uh, Our job as faculty members uh, it's mostly also how can we make sure that we contribute to that process? Yes, it's uh, it's a, a long term work.
0: Absolutely, I love hearing that there are all these different projects on the go right now, and you know, from the very highest levels to you know, sort of the, sort of the grassroots community, sort of faculty to faculty levels as well. That sort of makes me hopeful at least thinking that some of this will actually happen because it's being worked on in so many different places at the same time. And certainly, at Brantford, we're we're lucky because we have. Um, some history of this kind of work through the Being Raced report that that, um, a number of students worked on um, as a a student research project a few years ago. So we have some really solid data to start this journey with as opposed to starting from scratch.
1: That's right, Uh, that's right. And and Brentford we have two advantages. The fact that first, we have a little bit more information. Uh, You know, when you interview 30 students and they all uh, relate to an incident of discrimination that happened to them, racism, I think that it's a good starting point. Doesn't matter how the report was uh, or how the uh, uh, report was written. At the end of the day, I think we have uh, something to uh, work from. And also the fact that it's a smaller campus, uh, people go, tend to know each other. For me, it was uh, easy for me to connect with some of my colleagues. Uh, I have some that contacted me themselves. Hey, I mean, I'm thinking about doing this. Is it something that is under your uh, responsibility as a uh, EDI. Uh, can we meet? Can we talk? Uh, and you know, that, that type of interaction is a little bit easier. And as you said, also, we have a history. We are located in the downtown. It's the campus that is open. Uh, uh, you know, we not only deal with students, but we deal also with uh, um, a community. Uh, people who have stores in downtown. And, uh, it's, it tends to be, we have a history uh, as uh, a campus to uh, pay attention to how to include members of a, a larger community and also other st- stakeholders. Uh, and uh, for me, it's uh, something that a little bit uh, in, uh, easy to do in a way that uh, I am part of a smaller uh, community. I was at Laurier. I joined Laurier Brandfort in 2003, uh, which was five years after the campus opened, which uh, I have had a chance to know a lot of people. Uh, and I think that we have great support, of course, uh, discrimination does happen uh, sometimes. Uh, it is surprising, in fact, uh, how g- having information is important on the, on this area. Uh, it is uh, the example is that we don't have much information about faculty members. But recently, I was talking to just any colleague, any racialized colleague that you talk to at lawyer can give you examples of a situation where they felt uh, discriminated against, they felt like they were not li- being listened to, uh, and but this is not captures that information. Or one of the goals of sort of uh, the work that I'm doing is to think about how do we make sure that we create a space where we can continue uh, to collect this type of information, discrimination, racism on campus. It's not only uh, waiting every five years, six years, do a, a kind of a research uh, collect that information. It's also about ongoing collection of incidents that are happening on campus so that we can also uh, argue for a strong intervention and try to do something about it.
0: I think that makes sense because certainly the power of individual stories is important, but I think especially when, when we're trying to create larger institutional change, having that, that, that pool of data to draw from that is, like you said, consistent as opposed to sort of just dipping in every once in a while is probably going to prove really important.
1: That's right. It, 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 yeah, we have to do that. It seems like because uh, you know people can question where did you uh, get the information, or we don't have any proof. And I said that even to my racialized colleague uh, the last time I, we had a meeting is uh, that uh, yes, I. Uh, I was listening to people just uh, complaining and uh, around the table, and a lot of people just venting what uh, the the anger that they have inside because of things that uh, happened, and that were not resolved. Nobody was to seem to be listening, and I said, "Yeah, maybe we should think about how do we articulate." All of these complaints so that also the university can have access to this information to know that this is not this is not fake. This is not just, uh, you know, uh, there is no racism here. There is no institutional racism. Yeah, people can say that. But at the end of the day, uh, those who are victim of it, if you listen to them and if you hear them, they will tell you. Multiple examples of how, uh, sometimes it's, uh, the processes that are used. Sometimes it's the design of the system itself that doesn't allow for certain groups, uh, to benefit from uh, the way the system is designed. Those are big questions. And, uh, I believe that, uh, the good thing is that it seems that, like here at Laurier, at least, uh, there is a good intent to try to listen and to try to do something about it, which is good. That's great.
0: Lamin, thank you so much for doing this work and thank you for joining us today to tell us about it.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Our next guest is Vanessa Brown, who is a criminology student, but also the female champion in cross-country last year. She was also the first to capture an OCAA provincial title for Brantford, which she was looking forward to defending this fall before the pandemic. Here's our conversation. Hi, Vanessa, and thanks for joining us today on One Market.
2: Hi, Bruce, and it's my pleasure.
0: So you are Laurie Brantford's first female champion in cross country, and you won that title almost a year ago, I guess. Yes. So tell me a little bit about that. I don't know a lot about cross country. So how far were you running? What was your time?
2: Uh, last year, it was six kilometers and 22
0: minutes and 45 seconds. Wow. that That sounds very quick. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So is that the was that the end of your season then or did you go on to do more after that?
2: Uh, so that was provincial. So our second last race after that, it was nationals. My time was definitely not as good at nationals, but that's because it was was around negative 30. But the real field that day.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Where were you?
2: We were in Alberta.
0: Mm. Yeah, that would do it.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very snowy
0: that's still i mean i mean certainly for the the laurie brantford cross-country team that's still a huge achievement to place that you know to become the champion at provincial level so that's amazing
2: yeah i definitely didn't expect it i was aiming for a medal but i did not think first was attainable at the time oh that's funny yeah
0: how long have you been on the team
2: uh since first year so this would have been my third year on the team
0: Okay, and how much in a regular season, obviously this season is different, which we'll talk about in a moment, but in a regular season, how much time do you spend training on a regular basis?
2: Uh, Well, we train every day except for Friday, so I'd say, I like 12 to 15 hours at least.
0: Wow, so that's like a part-time job. Yeah, but a fun (laughs) one. (laughs) Well, that's good. Presumably you have to enjoy it, otherwise why would you do it, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's amazing. So what does I mean, and we sort of have this question for all student athletes, I guess. I mean, given that a lot of the events that would normally be happening this year are not happening, what is that like what does that mean for you? Do you do you sort of get to defend your title again like next year or like after you're off? Like what how does this all work?
2: Well, we don't know everything yet, but I will say I was very sad in June when they announced that all the sports were canceled. They said There's a possibility that they could do a spring season, but highly unlikely with the second wave. So yeah, looks like we're looking at next year.
0: That's too bad. Yeah. So are you training in the interim? I mean, maybe you're not training as much as you would have been normally, but are you still trying to keep up so that you can sort of come back in top form?
2: Oh yeah, I'm still training pretty much to the level I would have last year, but more so just for my, for my mental sake, (laughs) because I feel like. I'd be slacking if I didn't.
0: Right. After putting all this time and effort into it over the years.
2: Exactly. I don't want to lose my, uh, you know, all my training over the years
0: to coronavirus. So what does your training schedule look like on a regular basis? What do you, what are you doing?
2: Uh, So typically we do a hard workout Monday and then Tuesday would be a little bit of cross training and a little bit of running. Wednesday would be another like speed or hill tempo kind of workout. Thursday would be an easy day. Friday off, Saturday, another workout, and then Sunday would be our long run or Saturdays would
0: also be our races. Right. Yeah. That's, that's super busy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I definitely like the easy days the best.
0: Yeah. No kidding. I can see why that would be. (laughs) Yeah. So what's it like not having all your regular meets and sort of regular team trainings and stuff this fall? What's it been like so far?
2: Honestly, it's depressing. Like the dates keep going by and I keep remembering, oh, this week we would have had a race. This week we would have had a workout. But here I am in Kitchener training alone.
0: It must be hard to get used to because, I mean, especially if you're used to training with a team of folks, it must be weird to sort of do that stuff on your own as opposed to having it be the group event that it normally is.
2: Yeah, I definitely miss them. And I miss, I miss the drive and the competition. Because when you're just racing your own watch all the time, it it can get a little bit
0: boring. Right. And so are you keeping in touch with your team and your coaches virtually?
2: Yeah, we have a group chat and we still talk and try to motivate each other to the best that we can.
0: Well, that's good. Yeah. So when you're not running, you're a criminology student. How is your semester starting so far?
2: My semester is good. I'm a little bit confused with all the online stuff, but we're getting there. It's a little different.
0: Do you feel like you're into a routine yet?
2: Um. Yeah, I, I'm trying my best because some of my classes are Zoom, some of them are e-learning, so I'm kind of trying to make my own schedule, but
0: it's a little weird. Yeah, and I think I can't decide if it's weirder for folks who have already had in-person classes, and so this is completely different than the we're used to, or if it's weirder for first year students who don't know any better and don't know what to expect. I can't sort of, I can't sort of make up my mind.
2: Oh, I would say for the first years, it would be very awkward just because it's their first year of university and now they just get all this online stuff.
0: Yeah, I think it's challenging, right? And I mean, certainly as a varsity athlete, you would know this, that, you know, that's being on campus is, a, is in many ways an easy way to meet people just because they're all in the same classes together and the same clubs together. And I know they're replicating those kinds of things online, but it's not quite the same thing.
2: No, oh, it's not the same thing. And like, even when you do group work in class, you feel like you could go up to those people and say, hi, I know you. But when it's on Zoom, it just all seems so artificial and fake.
0: Yeah, I think it's harder to make that that sort of social connection that you would like you're saying, group work in a in a breakout room on Zoom or something, right? It's just like, oh, exactly. we're here for five minutes and then we'll sort of be pulled back into the main class. It's it's funny that way, certainly.
2: Yeah, and you just feel like you're not actually having real human interaction,
0: yeah, I think you're right. I think that's something that we're all trying to figure out how to, it's something we all definitely want, but to try to figure out how to do that the, the best way is still, I think we're still trying to figure that out in many ways. I think so,
2: but it's better than nothing.
0: <laughs> well, that's great. Vanessa, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been great to hear about how you've been keeping active through all this and hopefully, fingers crossed, you're able to defend your title next fall. Oh, no problem.
2: I'm definitely, tra- I'm definitely trading for that.
0: Our final guest is Julie Topic, director of ICT support at Laurier, who's based in Brantford. As you might imagine, she and her team have had a really busy few months working behind the scenes to ensure the rest of us have the technology we need to work, study and teach from home successfully. Here's our conversation. So I know that ICT does a lot of contingency planning, just given how reliant and and ever more reliant we all are on technology. But if you think back to March, was was part of your contingency plan ever everyone in the whole university working from home and having to support them?
3: No, that was never really a contingency plan at all. Um, Although I have to tell you that we did an amazing job flipping that switch and moving all our uh, faculty and staff to a remote work-at-home environment and providing the support that was required to help facilitate that.
0: I would agree, at least on the faculty side. I mean, it seemed so seamless that w- we sort of did wonder like, oh, maybe they planned exactly for this very weird situation that most of us had never occurred to. So what did those first couple of months look like?
3: So it was quite challenging. The very first thing we had to do was to get our technical staff uh, in the habit of providing remote support from their homes as well as establishing our service desk. And we do not have the uh, PBX telephone system working. So we had to establish how was faculty and staff and students going to contact us for remote support at the service desk. So we quickly established the process, which has worked perfectly well. And, and we don't have the typical 4357 extension. So you can chat via Teams with the service desk personnel. You can enter your own ticket into the portal, or you can actually call a couple cell phone numbers and be able to get uh, immediate um, person on the other end to provide support. Um, along with that, working from home was a challenge because a lot of people took their laptops home but didn't necessarily take their docking stations and their dual monitors so that was a bit of a challenge and the desktops of course the folks that had desktop computers was a bit of a challenge so we were supporting faculty and staff with home computers or desktops that were taken home or laptops so it was quite challenging and to help facilitate the work at home environment we had to expand our licenses for the VPN connections because anybody who needed to use Banner and other applications such as that had to have VPN access. So we had to quickly expand those licenses. We also had to implement Microsoft's ATP, which is Advanced Threat Protection. Because as computers were at home, we had to ensure that the Windows updates were occurring regularly, the security updates were occurring, antivirus was uh, being updated regularly. So we had to implement that very quickly. And um, we're still working on some of that ATP because a lot of the computers on campus in Brantford um, haven't been turned on because some folks are some folks are using their own personal computers. So that was some of the initial challenges. Of course, there was more afterwards.
0: Yeah, when I was thinking, I mean, so many of us did Zoom training over the summer, and the Zoom training was fantastic. But again, every time I took one of those courses, I thought, I'm sure that the people doing these courses are, are this is probably not what they're trained to do. This is probably not their number one job. It's what they're, they've they've become to do because it was so important for all of us to learn how to use this that but they did a really good job but again it made me think about the fact that they had probably not done a lot of this before and were sort of learning on the fly
3: you're absolutely correct bruce we did not have a web conferencing solution at the university so we worked with uh, zoom chose zoom as the uh, the solution and now the technical specialists are absolute experts in zoom and it's interesting because tech support specialists are good at sort of technical training from a hardware perspective but they absolutely step up to the plate and now they're experts in zoom and in teaching zoom because we do have a number of sessions on polling and breakout rooms creating um video and the basics of zoom so you're right, uh, this was something very new to them, and uh, they've done an amazing job.
0: Yeah, I, w- I was really impressed. Again, they, they, by the time I took some of the training in June, they seemed like they were, you'd never guess they hadn't been doing it for years and years and years, which I thought was really commendable. Yes. What's it like to, for, for folks on your team to provide the kind of tech support in a, in a completely remote environment to sort of deal with people who've got computers at home? And again, you say that may not be updated or maybe a home computer. What are some of the challenges of, of working like that? Because I, I, I'm thinking of like our faculty on campus, if we had a problem with our computer, we'd call or we'd wander downstairs and you know, Jason or Paul would come and help us with something, and they'd just come and do it. But presumably it's a lot more challenging to do remotely.
3: Yes, it is much more challenging and we actually had to buy some additional uh, licenses so that we could sort of remote control into uh, different computers. But it is challenging because, you know, as you say, the techs are used to being physically beside the client to see with their own eyes the experience that the client is having in terms of the issue. When it's remote, it's much more challenging because as they go through the steps of saying, you know, click this or click that. We don't see what the client is actually clicking, so we're not sure if they're actually understanding what we're trying to um, demonstrate. As well as it's much more difficult to provide remote support to faculty and staff who are using their own personal computers at home because often we don't know what the hardware is, we don't know what additional software they have on there, we don't know all their different wi-fi networks at home and so it can be challenging but again i have to say that the techs have done an amazing job of getting through that and they've they've actually developed a lot of good patience i have to say Mm -hmm. because you have to go through it step by step one thing at a time and um i think they've done a really good job to do remote support although they do want to be back on campus
0: (laughs) (laughs) no doubt don't we all right yeah (laughs) so if if that was sort of what the the, the spring looked like when when campus first shut down how did the rest of summer go Did, did things sort of ease off or did they sort of stay pretty busy as you started preparing for students to come back in in high numbers in the fall
3: yeah, we, uh, we were challenged uh, in the summertime, well, I guess towards the end of April and into May and June and into summer, because one of the other challenges that was posed to was that because of all the exams that went online and not in person, ICT, along with teaching and learning, was asked to provo- uh, provide support for online exams. And you can appreciate the number of final exams in April and then all the midterms and and final exams in the spring and summer terms where we had to provide level one support from an ITCT perspective. You know, students would uh, email an exam support email address and we had a number of our texts online, in the mailbox, providing that support, things like my Wi-Fi is not working, or um, I can't get my web camera to work, different things like that. And then after a particular amount of time, about five, seven minutes, if our techs were not able to help the student get in to write their online exam, we would pass them on to tier two, which was the teaching and learning group the ed tech group, and then they would then provide that level two support to the student and then often work with the faculty to basically decide what the decisions would be for, you know, defer the exam or restart the exam. And
0: I did not even thought about that. So that's a lot of people sort of on standby as all these exams are happening because you need that real-time support.
3: Correct. Correct. And it's a very, um, it takes a lot of resources from a level one and level two perspective. So we're actually working on a new strategy for the fall midterms, which I know have already started, um, and for the final uh, exams in fall and for the winter semester because they'll all be online as well.
0: Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, so on a personal level, what's it been like for you to do your job plus all this extra stuff um, from home? This must be as new for you as it is for the rest of us, I suspect.
3: It is, it is. Um, I, I do enjoy working at home. I have um, probably been working more on COVID type related issues. And technology and software that has to be implemented because of the situation working at home versus my own job. So, you know, almost every other week, there's a new challenge that we have to address and put a a solution into place. Um, I do enjoy working at home. I would like to go back to campus from time to time, um, but I do um, uh, enjoy Being at home and I don't miss the drive since I do live far away from campus.
0: Oh, there you (laughs) go. I suspect too that knowing you a little bit, you seem like someone who enjoys new challenges. So this must be at least keeping on your toes and always having something interesting and new to work on.
3: Yes, Bruce. There's never a dull moment. Um, We do have a leadership ICT meeting every day. And as I say, almost every other week, there's a new challenge that we have to jump on. And often the the deadlines are as make it happen as soon as possible. Yes. So we, we, we uh, I do like the challenge. And I have to say that the entire ICT support team is just an amazing group of people where we're here to provide that service to the university.
0: Well, we certainly appreciate all the work you and your team have been putting in, because like I said, from from my point of view, I've I've it's, it's, it has felt really seamless and anytime the many times I have put in tickets or called someone with a question, I've got responses so much so quickly and just so in such a helpful manner. So you guys are doing a really great job. So thank you for all of that. And thank you for joining us and telling us about it today. Great. Thank you so much, Bruce. And I do appreciate you uh, inviting me to uh, have a chat with you today. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. We hope it's helped you feel a little more connected to the Laurie Brantford community. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends and colleagues. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Worried about missing an episode? Sign up for our newsletter. You can find a link on Twitter and Facebook at OneMarketLB. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. One Market was created and produced by Bruce Gillespie and Tara Brookfield. Music by Scott Holmes. Graphics by Melissa Weaver. Our research assistant and intern is Serena Austin. Thanks for listening. Keep in touch.